Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we're continuing our conversation on the Federal Reserve and are back with our special guest, Charles Plosser, who is President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia from 2006 to 2015. In part one of the discussion, we talked about the recent sweeping changes the Fed made to its philosophy as it relates to targeting inflation and the use of labor market dynamics in doing so. In this episode, we look at alternative ways the Fed could operate. And we also look down the road at whether the central bank will likely become more or less effective over time. Lots to talk about, so let's get started. Thanks so much, Charles, for coming back and joining us for a second conversation. Great to be here. We've just spent a lot of time talking about what you did at the Fed previously, Charles, the action that the Fed has just taken and your reaction to their their most recent change in their philosophy. We haven't talked about what you think is the best way for the Fed to operate. You've just presented a paper to the so-called Shadow Open Market Committee uh, on September 30th, where you discussed a lot of these issues. Now, this is a group that has been around since the early 1970s and in a way is critical of the Fed. Can you talk about what this group is, how it got started, what it does, and how you've gotten involved? The Shadow Open Market Committee was created back in the early 1970s, you suggested, by Carl Bruner, who was a professor at the University of Rochester. And he sought to create a body of economists, mostly, to talk about policy rather than just economic theory, to bring that economic theory and what economists had to say about policy more directly to the public and to policymakers. So it was, it was, it was intended to be a way to communicate more broadly with the public. And of course, the 1970s were a time where inflation was approaching double digits, unemployment was high, and Carl fundamentally believed that policy was misguided at that time. And that was the outcome of it. So uh, he created this body with a, a number of other economists to do regular meetings to critique or to praise policymakers, particularly in the realm of monetary policy. That committee has been around since then and still exists today. I joined the committee in 1990. Carl Bruno was a colleague of mine at the University of Rochester. He invited me on board. And I served on that committee uh, until 2006 when I went to the Fed. I uh, had to step down, obviously, then. After I retired from the Fed, my colleagues invited me to come back. So it's a body that broadly talks about policy, not just monetary policy, but mostly about monetary policy. And does the Fed pay attention to it? In other words, for, <laughs> is it, is it a, a, simply a parallel exercise or does the, is the Fed actually interested in what this group has to say? Well, we oftentimes have Fed speakers at our conferences. And as a result, yeah, the Fed knows what we're saying. The Fed doesn't take criticism very easily, but they certainly understand what we're saying and when we say it and what our arguments are. So let's, let's take a look at the most recent arguments. You have been, in a way, a critic of the Fed uh, and of the whole ecosystem around the Fed in that many sort of ascribe a godlike status to the Fed in terms of its significance and power and its impact. And I think that you've suggested that the Fed 
may actually have a somewhat more modest significance and they may not be able to do as much as Congress and sometimes the president and, and the overall system expects of it. Talk, if you could, for us a bit about the ideas in your most recent paper and your overall sort of philosophy in that regard around the Fed. Well, my overall philosophy is, is that I think the public Congress markets have come to rely and expect too much from monetary policy. They're asking it to do things that it's not well suited to do and placing a burden on it to solve more problems than uh, it's capable of solving. So I think that's a very dangerous place for the Fed because it raises expectations of what it can do and takes the pressure off other branches of government and other ways of solving some of our problems because, oh, well, the Fed will take care of it. If they just raise interest rates a little bit here or lower them a little bit there, that, you know, that'll, that'll solve all our problems. It's like medicine where if a doctor prescribes a, a medication, if he hasn't got the diagnosis right, the wrong medication will not help and may even do much harm. And when economic policymakers and Congress and governments say, well, we can't do it, or fiscal policy is messed up, we'll put it on the Fed to do it. That's like, in many cases, prescribing the wrong medication, and it can be harmful. So I'm much more a believer that the Fed should be less active, less engaged in market intervention, and more focused on the things that it can do rather than on the things that people would like it to do. So that's a general philosophy I have, and uh, that showed up quite prominently, obviously, in the last decade with the financial crisis and the interventions by the Fed, and its role in the markets has merely increased, and some of that may have been beneficial, some of it may not have been beneficial. I happen to believe that a lot of it has put at risk the Fed's credibility and invited more politicization of the Fed and undermining its independence. So if you look specifically at some of the actions that have been taken in these extraordinary times, when you think about what those new reactions consist in, you have on the table things like quantitative easing, going out and, and actually purchasing significant amounts of securities for the express purpose of injecting liquidity into the system and or, in a sense, targeting the yield curve, not just controlling the front end of the yield curve directly, but sort of targeting um, implicitly the rest of the yield curve. You have a lot of other programs that have been introduced, both at the time of the financial crisis, but more recently with this crisis, there have been um, some new programs created and some old programs brought back, et cetera. Are those some of the things that you think may not have been a good idea or will turn out to have been less of a good idea in hindsight, or, or are there other things you're thinking of? So, yes, those are the things, but I'd like to sort of make a distinction the Fed has done lots of things over the last decade, and some of them I'm more supportive of than others. Let's take QE, for example, the quantitative easing. I think what the Fed did in 2008 and 2009 was most of that was warranted. I might have done it in a slightly different way, but most of it was warranted to solve uh, a financial crisis or to at least support the economy and the financial markets in the face of a financial crisis. I have more sympathy for that sort of lender of last resort aspect of quantitative easing. I was not a big supporter of the bailouts of Bear Stearns or AIG or uh, 
So I think those were potentially misguided. But uh, again, some of the things were uh, were justified. And like I say, I could quibble with some of the details, but they're not that important. The second phase of quantitative easing, what people refer to as QE2 and QE3, I was much more opposed to. That was no longer about saving the financial markets and providing liquidity. QE2 and QE3 was deliberately intended to boost employment, boost the economy, because by the time we did QE2 and QE3, mar- financial markets were, rest- were, over- were fine. They were healthy. They were functioning normally. That was a very different objective for QE and one that I felt pretty strongly would not have much of an effect and was going to be difficult to get out of. And uh, there's still debate about how much effect it had. But I think now we're now 10 years into this and the balance sheet is still, you know, many, many times bigger than it was before. And we've had trouble getting out of this. And that leads to a whole bunch of other questions about the Fed. In this recent crisis, back in March, we talked a little bit about in the previous session about the Fed stepping in quickly and trying to reassure markets and purchasing mostly treasuries and other things. I thought that was appropriate uh, in lowering the rate. Less appropriate, I think, was the actions they took to buy state and local government debt, corporate bonds, private securities of various kinds. I'm very leery of the Fed entering into markets for primarily private sector securities. Economists call that credit allocation, and I think that's a very dangerous place for the Fed to be. So, for example, in the latest crisis, when the Fed created a program at Congress's urging to buy municipal, state and local debt and to buy corporate bonds and to buy high-risk bond, junk bonds and to buy corporate paper and long-term bonds, I think that was a mistake for the Fed to do. It turns out it hasn't done very much of it. It took them a long time to get those programs going, and they really haven't lent that much money. But this was something the U.S. Treasury could have done. They didn't need the Fed to do this. So I think, I think this is, the, you know, there's some distinctions here about what I think are appropriate and what isn't. So I have been critical and I've been critical about monetary policy because it's too unpredictable. There's too much discretion and we need, the Fed needs to be transparent and be more predictable, I think, about how it goes about conducting monetary policy. You know, one of the things that occurs to me as I listen to you, and it's great to have the time to explore these topics in greater detail, is that I know that the Fed cherishes its so-called independence. And when the Fed engages in these more unconventional, at least from an historical lens, approaches in a non-crisis scenario, it seems like it's got to be increasingly difficult for the Fed to maintain the, the independence and not have political overtones to what it's doing. It's less surprising that a president might try to push the Fed around when the Fed itself is engaging in some of these things that it's hard not to perceive as at least as a participant as having some political ramifications. Exactly. And it takes actions. It begins to invite politicization, to invite political pressure, to allocate credit in a particular way or to fund off-budget government spending. If you recall, in 2015, Congress funded part of their transportation bill by taking money off the Fed's balance sheet and using it to fund 
You can recall that the Consumer Finance Protection Agency, when it was funded by Congress, whether you think the agency's good or bad, is indifferent. They funded it out of the Fed so that it was not subject to the appropriations process. And so the Fed now pays for it out of its cash flows. So again, the history here, whether it be the administration or whether it be Congress, using the Fed for fiscal policy is increasing. And that, to me, is very dangerous. Historically, there's always been a line between conducting monetary policy and fiscal policy. And the Fed's actions have blurred that distinction and done other things that have made that more feasible and more likely in the future. And I think that's not good for the Fed, and it will make it more political. Let's explore an area that I'm just dying to talk to you about and get your your insights on, which is Fed communication and messaging. When I started in this industry, I remember the days when Fed communication or messaging consisted in whether or not Chairman Greenspan went to the FOMC meeting with a briefcase in his left hand or his right hand. <laughs> and that would indicate whether or not race might move that day. Now we've got into a world where, by stark contrast, we have all kinds of not just routine statements and minutes and projections, but we also have press conferences. And I know I'm exaggerating, of course, uh, for effect, but everyone that is uh, a third cousin once removed from a Fed governor gets to go on TV and talk about the views of the Fed and what's going to happen. And they have dot plots and all that kind of stuff. And I often feel as a audience member, just stop, just be quiet because you're, all you're doing is you're adding more confusing signals and it's evident that you don't know what's going to happen. The Fed by its own mission says that what matters will be the economic data that is freshest and, and, and most recent at the time of this next decision. And they don't have any better idea what that economic data is today, you know, two or three months from now than I do. So just stop talking so much and stop adding all this confusion to the world. That's my reaction. How do you see it? I think that there are two elements to this. One is I think it's very important for the Fed to be as transparent as it possibly can. I don't think monetary policy should be thought of as um, a dictator who just tells everybody what they're going to do and doesn't explain it or talk about it. I think that's that's not that's not good transparency. And I think our, dis- our our discussion that we've had about things about expectations of inflation and how important those are for markets and for asset prices and for uh, the economy, being more transparent about those sorts of things is important. So I'm all for transparency. And the Fed has worked very hard over the last 20 years to try to become more transparent. There have been some footfalls, if you will, and times they, you know, didn't work out quite as planned, but I think the effort is laudable and important. You may remember, Tony, the saying about Alan Greenspan in response to a senator's question that said, Mr. Greenspan, I think you understand what, what you're saying. And Mr. Greenspan interrupted and said, Senator, if you thought you understood what I said, then I must have misspoken. <laughs> Well, I mean, and that's the whole idea that transparency is terrific. But if if the reality is that there's nine governors and they all have nine different views around real views around the future, then the transparency is just going to confuse everybody. It's not going to 
help everybody necessarily. But Tony, life is confusing. There <laughs> is no certainty. And uncertainty is, in fact, real. So how do you deal with uncertainty? So my view is dealing with uncertainty is not to make promises that you don't know whether you can keep or you start off by saying, I'm going to promise to do this unless things change. That's no promise. That's confusing in my view. My view has always been one of trying to have the Fed articulate as best it can, not what's going to happen in the future, but how they'll react to what happens in the future. You know, if such and such happens, we will lower rates. If such and such happens, we will raise rates. If such and such happens, we will, you know, stand steady or or extend our interest rate policy. Providing the public with some kind of reaction function, even if it's not mathematical or algebraic, you know, about how they'll react to events, I think is very important. And that's what I wish, uh, wish the Fed would do more of. And then, obviously, at the end of the day, they have to follow through with that. That would make them about as transparent as they can be, as you say, because the future is uncertain. It'll give people a better understanding of what the Fed is reacting to and how it will react to that, not forecasting the future. So I think the Fed should be more proactive about communicating its reaction function or uh, how it responds to the world rather than trying to make promises. I think that is dangerous because the likelihood of them actually keeping those kinds of promises are much more difficult to achieve. As someone who was very involved in the creation of the January 2012 statement on long-term goals and objectives that first established an inflation target, I thought that was very important because it said, look, the Fed sought inflation of 2%, and you could count on if inflation was above 2%, they'd be trying to get it back to 2%, and if it was below 2%, they'd be trying to get it up to 2%. That's a pretty simple message and pretty clear and easy for everybody to understand. The new messaging that they we talked about in the last podcast, the last episode of this, is much more complicated <laughs> and not sure it's clearly understood by anybody what's, what's going to happen. So I want more systematic policy, more transparency, and more clarity in those dimensions. And that's been a frustrating thing to get through the Fed because policymakers generally want discretion. They want a free hand to react however they choose to react at the time. And that leads to uncertainty. It doesn't necessarily mean lead to better policy because you can react at the time and you may make the wrong decision. (laughs) So being more systematic reduces the number of bad decisions, reduces the volatility of policy, and leads to more predictable economy. So my last question is really an open-ended one. Is there anything that we haven't covered, whether it be in terms specifically of changes that you'd like to see the Fed make to how it operates and what it does? Uh, We've talked about the fact that you'd like to see the Fed stay away from engaging in actions that could be reasonably taken as fiscal substitutes, if you will. Um, particularly during non-crisis periods, tend to be the non-conventional tools that they might use when it's not a crisis um, that could easily be seen as a more of a fiscal play. I mean, you've talked about the desire to be more transparent 
um, without promising anything and being more conditional in their statements about the future. When you look at, for example, the other federal banks around the world or other ideas that you've had, is there anything else from a sort of a structural operating standpoint that the Fed should consider doing differently? Well, no, I think you've summarized what I, very succinctly what I said. And I think that the issue of independence, I think, is a very important one. The follow-on comes from the fact that when the Fed engages in something that's more fiscal policy related, you know, it invites Congress and others to use the Fed for political purposes or for fiscal purposes. And that's, that undermines its independence. So I think the Fed needs to be more cautious and more willing to explain to the public with less hubris that their powers are limited and they should be limited. If you want to preserve independence, you need constraints in a democracy and that there needs to be constraints on what the Fed can and can't do. And the Fed needs to seek more clarity about that and to seek a better understanding with the fiscal authorities and the public that the Fed has limited abilities and can't solve everything. Well, I want to thank you again for your insights. It's been a great conversation today. And I think I've just provided two of the three takeaways um, in our summary. Um, I'll just restate them again one more time. One is that the Fed should stay away from the fiscal domain wherever it can. And in particular, it tends to stray from what it rightly should be shooting at when it uses a lot of these non-conventional tools during a non-crisis environment would probably be a good rule of thumb for it. Secondly, the Fed needs to be more transparent without promising anything, making its projections more conditional on different states and conditions that might actually support a projection taking place one way or another, rather than just making a promise and then saying, but if X happens, maybe we'll do it differently. And then last is that the Fed needs to work with the other partners and players in the overall system to make sure that there's a clear understanding and reciprocity and understanding, if you will, around what the Fed's limits are and what should be expected of the Fed and what should not be expected of the Fed. I did want to, Charles, make sure that everyone knows that we mentioned the Shadow Open Market Committee at the start of the episode, and you can learn more about that group, and you can read Charles' most recent paper about the Fed by visiting shadowfed.org, where you'll find all kinds of great information around the Fed and thinkings from Charles and many of his colleagues on the Shadow Open Market Committee around what's working and what might not be working as well as as it could with regard to the Fed. With that, I want to thank you again, Charles. This has been just a great experience for us and for our audience over these two podcasts. My pleasure. It was fun. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. 
Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through m Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by m Bank, member FDIC. 2021 m Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.